Mother's Day. I have to admit, kind of being in worship with you this morning, I just feel the kind of tenderness of this moment. I've sort of learned along the way that joy and and sorrow can exist at the same time in the same place. A Mother's Day is certainly uh, the epitome of that in so many ways. And I just want you all to know, as I see you gathering in your joy and in your loss today, that that we see you. Uh, and I've spent uh, most of the uh, worship time just kind of walking around and praying for you all uh, this morning. I feel it. I, I feel it intensely uh, for you today. So. Um, God bless you. And as we talk about things that are important, I think that is the appropriate way to celebrate Mother's Day. Uh, several years ago at our Greenwood campus, when I was a campus pastor there, we had a scripture reading during Christmas. Uh, it was Isaiah's vision of a world much like the one that we heard today, uh, when God's righteousness would shine into every dark place. And the scripture being read was they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into tuning hooks, and they will prepare for war no more. And kind of almost without thinking about it, we, you know, we invited Christmas families to come and light our Advent candle and to read those scriptures. And we invited a beautiful little family, uh, a, a husband and a wife, and, uh, um, um, uh, and they had their little girl and the mom was, was pregnant. And as she tried to get through that scripture, she just couldn't do it that vision of the world that we're bringing our children into just became thick in the room. And we all saw it through her, through her eyes. And so very much today is, is like that. We see a bit the world through a mother's eyes and the connections that, that God wants to make, not only to set the world right, but to connect people. Uh, and that is a vision that is not just about mothers, it is about the, the, uh, really the vision of God. And uh, what God wants to do to create a people in the world who get that and who are for that, who are distinctive in their connection to God and their uniqueness, their specialness, so that they, that can be translated to the world to bring God's specialness, it's a word I'm making up, specialness to the world. So our vision of that that we have been exploring together is the, the, in the language of Jesus, to be a city on a hill that shines its light. Uh, to, to not, it doesn't make any sense to have a light that doesn't shine, essentially. Like nobody, Jesus says, hides, uh, lights a lamp and then hides it. No, so there are these two dynamics always at play, and we're going to tease that out a bit today as we think about you know, these kind of big ideas in which the world is set right and justice breaks forth and like the dawn and God's light shines into the world. There is the need for something distinctive, and then there's the need for that distinctiveness, thing, the, the distinctive thing to influence other things. It's just like pretty simple, but the challenge is to have both. It's, it's easy to kind of think of one or not the other, uh, and um, the vision is for both. So to get at that, I got to thinking about some things that you might have had growing up, or maybe I did, in your, in your home, uh, in which uh, it was sort of special. Like, so we're talking about special things. You probably grew up with special things all around you and maybe so much so that they were kind of almost set apart or set aside and you weren't allowed to touch them. Like for me, I grew up with a, a family Bible on the table at the end of the couch, like right there in the middle of the living room. Um, and it was, uh, it was about 50 pounds, right? Like this big, big Bible and it had our family tree in it and we you know, kind of mar marked out who's who and who was born where and all that. But it sat there, but you weren't really allowed to touch it. Like we had other Bibles that we read, 
but we didn't, we, that, that one was special. It was set apart and almost so much so that it was set aside. Anybody have that uh, dynamic when, when you're, no, it's just me. Okay. Um, well, let me try again. How about, did anybody's dad have like a classic car in the garage? Like going to get it still. Okay. We'll keep working. So, um, but you can imagine, imagine with me, like, uh, you know, that dynamic, like, you know, kind of like so much so that it's polished and you can't really drive it. Right. You probably know somebody who's like that. Their car is so special to them. I'm struggling. Okay, so let me uh, let me try one more time because this is the metaphor I'm going with, and if I don't have have this, then we're kind of we'll just wrap up early. Uh, <laughs> so fine china. Anybody have like china in a china? Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> so so like uh, it's kind of like a thing, right? It's like you have the good the good china, the good plates, and they go into a china cabinet. They made a cabinet for the thing, so it can be on display for everybody to see. But I'll tell you, like Jenny and I spent in our in our kind of you know getting ready for our gift registry twenty almost six years ago when we were um, getting married, we picked out our china pattern. It was 1997. Everything was hunter green, so our our china uh, was was hunter green. We spent a lot of time picking it out, and people paid money. And do we use that? Not so much, right? So that, that's the dynamic. So like, how do you have something that's special, distinctive, elevated, pick your word, unique, distinctive, but also how do you incorporate that into the er- everyday life? And that is the dynamic that is always at play in God's interactions with, with us in the world. God has set a people apart that is special. We even use the word holy, which means set apart. But how are those people set apart but not set aside? How do you take the good china and put it to use in that metaphor? So when I was growing up, this is my, a story about my mom. Um, I, I was uh, one of three boys, and mom's job in life was to keep us fed, which was a challenge. My dad worked in farming and construction, and then he had two brothers and my grandpa. And so sometimes around our table, you're, not, you're just like, you know, trying to get people volume, right? Ruby Payne says that, uh, you kind of know which class you grew up in uh, right, when, by answering a question around food. If you grew up sort of close to poverty, the question is, is there enough? And the, if you grew up in middle class, the question uh, is, it, is it a good quality? And if you grew up in upper class, it's what's the presentation? So we were definitely, uh, is there enough? And we were answering the question with big volume, right? And my, I, growing up, my um, goal was always to eat more than my dad. And, um, and that was just it. So like three boys in the household, mom would sometimes have two grocery carts full of food at the IGA in Rockport, Indiana, you know, checking out. And she would talk about sometimes people judging her, like she was just trying to keep this fed. So at some point in the eighties, our grocery store, IGA in uh, Rockport, Indiana did a promotion. And I wonder if this was just a Southern Indiana thing or if this is more of a universal thing, uh, you could score points by the grocery uh, shopping, like how much money you spent, and you could pick a china pattern, and then you could like keep kind of building your points until you would get a plate, and then you would get another plate. Okay, so show of hands, that's a thing too. Okay, good. And um, my mom was like, finally I get some of this back. 
And so she was buying the groceries and racking up the points. And it was like um, the course of a year. And, and she would tell us about it. She was so excited. And as I look at it now, it's like she had so little that was hers and so little that was like beautiful. I mean, it was a house of burps and farts, okay, at our house. And she's picking out fine china. And, um, and she just relished in it. And she would tell us about the plates. And then we learned that there were not only just plates, but also smaller plates that did other things, which felt like they didn't hold in as much, you know, like that, that just seems like not to make any sense. And then there were like little cups with little saucers, like she, it, she was all in it. And I distinctly remember the day when we cashed in on the full set of fine china and the pattern, the beautiful pattern that she had picked out. It was kind of like a pale gray blue and it had flowers just intricately around the edges. She brought that home and it was like a Monday and we were gonna use those things, right? So there wasn't like a lot of planning and preparation. It wasn't like we had, it's not like the meal changed. I think that's the important point. It wasn't like, it's like, oh, we're having steak tonight or we're having creme brulee or whatever it is. It was like, we're cooking spaghetti which can be fancy, but kind of just, you know, volume too. And um, sweet tea, which we always had. Uh, and we were in Indiana, but we are Southern. Actually, we're below the Mason-Dixon line. So sweet tea was sweet tea. And it was very sweet. And um, that's important. And then we had green beans. Uh, we would can green beans out of the garden. So like a jar of green beans, you open it up, heat it up. Um, served on the fine china. And it was special. We all sat down and the meal was transformed. Like somehow the spaghetti with the sprinkled cheese from the can just was a little bit better, right? And uh, we all sat drinking our sweet tea out of those little cups and my brothers and I got our fingers up and we spoke with a British accent, as it went, like it was fancy. And those green beans, which by the way, uh, my, my, uh, some of my, my wife's family made fun of me for this. Like I came into the, you know, their family, we would make spaghetti and we would make green beans, right? Because uh, uh, growing up, that's the only legal vegetable that can go with spaghetti. I did, I did that, that's, I was just the assumption. So, but the green beans just tasted better. The whole meal was transformed. So not only were the plates special, not only was the meal special, but then we, we were special. And that is a vision of the transformation that we talk about in a prophetic vision of the world. That God chooses a people that understand that they're special. And they, the, the, the challenge is to remain distinctive. To not lose sight of God's choosing. To not lose sight of, we would say in Christian terms, the depth of God's love that has come and called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light to somehow stay in touch with our belovedness. But also not to be like China up on the, 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 the shelf. Somehow then to take that into everyday Monday, that was a leaf. I do not know what to do with that. Um, to, where was I? Okay, so let's start back in. So distinctive, but also then served up on an ordinary Monday with spaghetti to the world. And that is a sacramental way of living our lives. 
So which is more important? Staying in touch with our distinctiveness or offering that distinctiveness up to serve? Which one is it? Well, it's, it's both. And that's what we mean when we use the word holy, for example. It's easy for holy to be set apart and up on the shelf and, and distinctive, but also end up being holier than thou. Somehow there's a disconnect. Even our religion can be a way in which we don't make the connection to serve that up in grace to the world. And that's the, the context of Isaiah 58, as we have a people kind of living in a tension that we are familiar with. We're doing a lot of religious things, but it doesn't seem like God is showing up in the world the way we would hope. Like we're going through the motions, but there's a question behind the question is that does it even really matter that much? A question that we bring into our context, but is not new, which is does church matter? Does kind of, does worship matter? And worship becomes the, the, the point of connection and the point of context for the discussion in Isaiah 58. People who have said earlier on, before what we uh, read this morning uh, in Isaiah 58, 3, why have we fasted, the people say, and God, you haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? This is the context of anybody who has questioned whether going through religious kinds of things really matter that much. And what you end up finding is people choosing one side or the other. Are you hanging with me? Because I think this is really important. People who go the super religious side and kind of say, hey, we're going to get all the things right, right doctrine, right social practice, right polity, which means how we you know, do things in the life of the church. And that becomes this whole world and it is distinctive and it is special and the people who are in it, who they are in it. And then you have people over here who say, no, it's really about social justice. It is about making, God making things right in the world. It is about serving. It is about making a difference. And that's the thing that's most important. So we should do that. And what Isaiah is going to say is yes and yes. And then this. In fact, not only this, but in this dynamic connection in which our worship and our social engagement get caught up in something bigger, which is a, a communion, a, a connection to God. So that the very things that we are doing in worship become so transformative that, that they transform us and those around us. A city on a hill that shines a light. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen, God says, to, to loose the chains of injustice? See the connection there? Like there's a religious act and there is a social justice or a social embodiment of that coming together. It, 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 it's both things. Is this not the thing? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of every yoke, to set the oppressed free. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? Now, the word religion actually uh, is the root word in Latin, which is not a biblical language, but the root word in Latin is where we get our word ligament. That L-I-G that's in religion is the same root word as in ligament. And what does a ligament do? It holds stuff together, right? But not in a static way. You know, those ligaments keep us moving in this dynamic ability then to engage, to act, to do. And religion is like that. It must be like that or it's just a waste of time, Isaiah would say. say. But we don't want to throw that out. We just want to make the connection. 
And so if we're asking, does what we do matter? Does church matter? Does religious stuff, does worship matter? It absolutely does. But it has to also matter in the way that it is translated as the good china is brought down from the cabinet and served up, bringing communion to the world. Is, is this not to share your food with the hungry, Isaiah says, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to turn, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? I'll have to admit, as I read that part of the scripture, verse 7, I kind of maybe glossed over it or thought when we use the word, the term flesh and blood, what do we typically mean? We mean a close family, right? But I wonder if maybe part of the key of understanding that scripture and what God is doing, even in us, is to understand what really is going on with that part of the, the, the passage. Okay, we get like feeding the hungry and doing these kind of these important kind of things that, that cause us to serve one another. But what about that last part? to not turn away from our own flesh and blood. Maybe that isn't just our immediate family. There's an idea in the book, Tattoos on the Heart, by Father Greg Boyle. Uh, Father Greg is a Jesuit priest. I've shared about him before. He's written all kinds of books, and all of his books are phrases that he has taken that relate to the people he served, which are gang members in Los Angeles. So in our metaphor of the China not being up on the cabinet, you have, um, but served to the world, you have who, a person who I would consider a saint, someone who has given their life to Christ and has cultivated a deep spirituality, so much so that it's not stuffy, he's funny, uh, he's snarky, he's, he's real, and at the same time has spent 40 years serving some of the, the most challenging situations in, in our country, uh, the largest gang rehabilitation ministry in the world. Uh, he has, uh, last I heard, done almost 300 funerals of young people who have died because of gang violence. So you see the two dynamics at play. And what I think you find in those kinds of settings is all of the lofty ideas about how you do it fall away, and it gets real, real fast. And so those are the kind of folks I want to listen to. And Father Greg says something that I, that I think make, maybe helps us understand a concept that he's developed that makes us understand the whole thing, especially that flesh and blood part. He uses the word kinship. Meaning that, that we're, what we're doing, in, even in our serving, is helping make the connections between God and people. And those connections are important. That in fact, if we uh, serve, and if you look in the, our back wall, that's one of our mission words, invite, grow, and serve. There's the goal of coming in and co coming to worship and being drawn into a process that transforms us and then sends us out. But even that can be done sort of from a distance. You can serve people, but not connect to people. You can even use your religion like, oh, I'm the kind of person that serves. Look at me. Feeds into that holier-than-thou side of things if we're not careful. I'm the kind of person who does really, really wonderful, holy things. And even our religion can be a, a way in which we don't connect to others. 
Kinship, on the other hand, is that vision of shalom that we read about in the Old Testament. It is communion as we think about what Jesus is doing, being with one another more than just serving each other in some power dynamic. This is what Father Greg says. He says, soon we imagine with God the circle of, us, the circle of compassion, which literally means shared suffering. Then we imagine no one standing outside that circle. So much so that we move ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased. We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and powerless and the voiceless at the edges. We join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when no one is thrown away. Kimship is the realization that we were never meant to be separate, that there isn't any daylight between us, he says. And so in this giving and receiving of worshiping and serving, there is this bigger thing that is happening. We're connecting to God and one another, and we call that communion. It is the ability to take our regular lives and, and cultivate our distinctiveness, our specialness, and then in the same way offer that up as a gift to the world. Offer it up actually without being in control of it. Like this is, this is just what we do. We're not in control of the outcomes. We just continually have this dynamic going on. So much so that in a world where there are a lot of us and thems, that we create a world in which it's actually just our, fill in the blank, our people, our brothers, our sisters, our flesh and blood, our kin, our kinship. Let me kind of pause there and tell you what I think this looks like. Several years ago, we helped start the Foundry Community, uh, Christian Community Center. We were talking about what it would mean to serve children who grew up in poverty, who have, um, who have maybe opportunities that are underrealized, and simply because they're where they're born, we'll consider them average. They could have been above average. They could, they could excel. And as we looked at those dynamics, one of the things that we discovered through a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation was that that was a great thing, but it would not work if we just said we were going to go serve their kids. But the only way it would work is to change our mindset and say, no, they're not their kids, they're our kids. And so, so that our thing is the difference, is the connection between our religion and our service. The only way this works is we go to people like God has come to us, and it's about connection and grace and community. Those people become us. When we started mentoring in schools, like almost 16 years ago now, we asked people to go into one of our uh, local elementary schools, and then uh, we've, we've got two of those going now, and they have lunch once a week. And the, so to take our metaphor, it's like take the fine china to a school lunchroom, right? Make that a place of, of grace and encounter with God over a very ordinary thing. And we, we just wanted to connect to some those kids and make them our kids. One of the people who did that was Missy Cunningham. Missy uh, started working with a young lady in, who was in fourth grade, uh, who was an international student. And who, so her struggle was just kind of making connections to this to the, the, this community and the, the context and all those things. And Missy uh, worked with her all the way through school from there, there on, from fourth grade on. Last weekend, that young lady graduated from Western Kentucky University. 
uh, with a degree in architecture. And she sent that picture to Missy because she wasn't just one of those kids, she's one of ours. One of the beautiful things a church can do is put down roots and see things through in the long haul. In a world that kind of shifts back and forth, even when people come in and out, we hold the space to say, nope, it's not us and them. This is kinship. This is us. In 2018, our church had the chance to bring what we offer to the table again uh, as we were having conversations about what our community needs. And we brought into this room uh, Abraham Williams, the, the director of the, the housing authority here. And uh, the stage used to be up there. Uh, and I remember uh, kind of giving him the floor. And the first thing he said was, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to kind of give you the rosy version? And then he stopped like he really wanted to know the, the answer. And we said, no, tell us the truth, which I think was a critical step. And then uh, we asked the question, well, what do, what, do, what do we need to know about in our community? What's, what's the thing that we don't realize and where could we possibly work together? And he said, immediately, we don't have access, our poor people don't have access to good food. It's the very thing that we read in Isaiah, right? That there is not a, there's a food desert, which I had heard about on NPR, but I didn't know existed in Bowling Green, if I'm honest. And he said um, that people go to the convenience store, they, they buy crappy food, uh, it's not healthy and it's really expensive. They have to ride a bus if they don't have transportation to Walmart and they can only carry what they can carry. So we just have a real food access problem and a church could help us do that. So he finished up, we sent the group to the groups to discuss and I turned to him and said, well, when should I come down and let's talk about that? I confess, I figured it would be like a date on the calendar, you know? Uh, and he said, how about in the morning? And so began a process by which we discovered that there was a need. And be, more than that, became, we kind of became together in this. And we've done this, like you want to talk about any of the ministries, Hotel Inc., The Foundry, Ashley and Justin Guest, any of the, the ministries that we partner with, that is the goal, that, that we're in this together and we, we're building relationships. And um, as we did that, we saw that there was a need. We thought we were going to find a, a physical location for a grocery store, and then that kept not working. And at some point in the conversations, literally around the table over months, it, somebody said, you know, people, like, get their groceries at Kroger now. This is kind of a new thing uh, where they, you know, like, they go and get them. They, they're already kind of ready. What if we took that and then just delivered it to the people? And the mobile grocery idea was born. And then as we put the thing together, there was the, you know, a, the donation of a bus, and then people began to bring their resources to the organization of it and to the roots and to the, the wrap around the bus and became marvelous. And in the center of that uh, was Megan Davidson, who was on our staff at the time, who was at the table in those conversations, and she became the face of that. And so when Megan passed away, we renamed that ministry the, the Megan's Mobile Grocery. But the story I often tell is um, about the day when Megan died. And um, we were all in shock. And Abraham Williams called me now, whatever, three years later, um, the kind of relationship that he and I have had then and since has been just, just a kind of special, distinctive, you might say. I picked up the phone and Abraham, Abraham said, these words, Adam, it's not our Megan, is it? 
And that word our is our vision of a community of people who find their connection in a different way, connecting a a transforming love of God uh, in things like worship and singing songs and praying and serving in the world, but doing so that ultimately offers to the world something special, something distinctive. What's being called for from you and from us is to realize that you're the fine china and it's your task, it's our task to figure out how to set the table for the world. You are blessed to be a blessing. And so, go and be special. Cultivate your distinctiveness. Keep praying, keep showing up for church, keep doing the religious things so that that can make a connection to what God is doing in us and in the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden, and so don't let that light shine underneath a basket, but set the table for the world so that we can share in the kinship of God, so that we might experience shalom, so that we might have communion with God and with one another and with the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers forward as we turn to a moment of offering. And as the musicians come forward to lead us, our prayer is that we would have God's heart for the world and to offer ourselves to let God work in us and so that we have something distinctive to offer. We can't cultivate this ourselves. It is something God cultivates in us. But the truth is, as we ask the question, why does this matter? Here's, I think, the the easiest answer, which is uh, someone has to set the table. And that's us. We set the table for the world, for God to do what God alone can do. And so in some way, I just invite you to offer yourself to that, to the distinctiveness of being the people of God, to be special, and then to offer that up for God to use. Let's pray together. God, we offer ourselves to your redeeming work. We pray that it would begin with us and that in the dynamic interaction that we have with you and with one another, that out of that health and out of that repentance and out of that transformation, out of that redemptive work in us, that we might be part of a greater redemptive work in the world, that we would not lose sight of our distinctiveness and that we would not lose sight of your call to keep offering that special thing wherever we are. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.